All right, folks, I am so grateful you're tuning in for episode 98. If you've been listening, I've been doing a little bit of a countdown to episode 100. Most importantly, just to thank you for listening. Some of you are new. Some of you have been here from the beginning. And I just want to thank you for your time and investment. And for those who've given me feedback and shared what's been important to you, you've helped shape this show. And I am so excited for what's to come. So if you've been listening to this show and you have been impacted by it, I'd be honored if you left a rating and a review and just to help us celebrate this milestone and share this show with a few folks you think may benefit from it. That would be a huge gift to me as we approach this milestone. All right, now on to the show. We're not always going to be on the same page, even if we value a freedom or equality in mind. But it's really the opportunity that an ecosystem can create the container to have some of those uncomfortable conversations and that the ecosystem creates the container where we can all sit with some discomfort and recognize and have faith that if we are having those conversations in good faith, that the ecosystem is going to enable us to learn a little bit more about an issue or about each other or where we stand in terms of our values. What is your relationship with conflict and disagreement? Do you see conflict as bad or dangerous or simply a natural part of relationships and being in a group or on a team? What helps you move through conflict and differences of opinion when Things are so heavy and charged. Do you avoid it at all costs or do you try and be a peacemaker and help everyone feel heard? Or do you, like yours truly, <laughs> dive right into the arena and take a stand for what you believe? Now, many of you probably vacillate between all of these depending on the topic and the people you're around, right? And if you've had a hard time even feeling what to do these days and can do, on how to make a difference, especially with all the polarities around us, man, I get that too. My guest today offers a framework that offers a way to contain our overwhelm into some actionable practices that can help you connect to your purpose and your values while navigating the discomfort of disagreement, high stakes decisions, and deep exhaustion. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with humans who navigate life's challenges and lead in their own ways. Our goal is to learn how they address the burdens they carry, how they learn from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. I know I'm not the only one dealing with the overwhelming feeling of all that needs to get done at home and at work while taking in the heartbreak I see all around me. It's a lot. It is simply just hard to be human. And this overwhelm fuels our uncertainty about how to engage with each other and our own emotions. I also suspect many of you hold a complicated relationship with conflict, speaking and living your values while trying to figure out what's your responsibility and what's not. Now, my childhood and early work experiences inform my relationship with conflict to this day. While working in D.C. and applying to be the head of scheduling for my then boss, I researched and spoke with some other folks who used to work for him. And they all said one of the things he really values is when staff negotiates, debates, and works things out amongst themselves. So whatever ended up on his desk was the accumulation of a lot of different perspectives and often some heated debates, and resulted in some excellent work. He valued a staff that didn't all think exactly the same, and valued good conversation, even hard conversations, around the topics he cared about the most, and brought folks onto his team that weren't just going to be yes people, but cared deeply about these issues, and could engage in those kind of conversations with passion and conviction. And also during that time, I was in a small group from my church with folks who had vastly different perspectives on all things politics and culture. I loved how we would debate and argue and then break bread together. And 
we really supported each other in our lives, regardless of our disagreements. And it made a profound impact on me too. So that's what I cut my teeth on when I was a young 20-something, combined with coming out of a household that saw conflict as a sport in a very unhealthy way with a lot of explosions all the time, meaning emotional explosions, right? So my personal capacity for conflict feels different than a lot of folks around me. And as my husband often reminds me, not everything has to be a debate. And, you know, why not, right? No, he's right. But my default is just to hunker down so quickly while I find it fun and engaging. It's exhausting. So I'm learning. I have been learning over the years. Now for you, depending on how you experience conflict growing up and what you learned in early work and life experiences, combined with your own personality, temperament, gender, race, class, and more, all of these factors and experiences influence how you do difference and conflict. Your strengths and struggles with conflict only become more amplified when working on teams or in any type of group. And what I love about the framework that my guest today developed offers us all guardrails and clarity on how to utilize our gifts and strengths while also honoring the gifts and strengths of others so we can welcome difference, admit shared values as a positive and not something to fear, but instead something to nurture. Imagine that difference is something to nurture. Now, You may think, okay, what is Rebecca talking about this ecosystem thing? This isn't realistic. I can see that. Hang in there with me because I hear from so many of you that you feel like if you maybe disagree with others or you, you risk being shunned or lose your sense of belonging or worse, you could lose your job or community. But ecosystems approach to change help us start to ask ourselves what's our part while also holding a high regard for other perspectives in ways that can create some more space for vulnerability and more risk-taking. We can all disagree and still move forward based on some overlapping common ground. I know, a novel approach, right? Now, if you work with me, you know I talk a lot about the difference between content and process and how sometimes focusing on just the content can derail the really important process that is happening. We could get so stuck in the content and our way of seeing things and who said what and when and how, which sure is an important thing, but it's not end game. But the relationship, the respect, the approach, the process of how conflict is happening can be just as impactful to move things forward. So as you listen today, you'll hear my guest and I disagree about an approach to activism and change, especially around this certain terminology. I mean, I don't even know if it was a full on disagreement, like don't get your popcorn out or anything like that. But we disagreed on this role of using a tactic and we flushed it out, realizing that we may just have some different views on this approach, but still connect on many values. I felt so honored to have this conversation today with my guest. And I really appreciate this little moment, too. And I can't wait for you to learn from her. Deepa Iyer is a South Asian American writer, strategist, and lawyer. Deepa leads projects on solidarity and social movements at the Building Movement Project, a national nonprofit. She conducts workshops, trainings, uplifts narratives through Solidary Is This podcast, and facilitates solidarity strategy for cohorts and networks. Previously, Deepa served as Executive Director of South Asian Americans Leading Together, otherwise known as SALT, for a decade and also held positions at Race Forward, the U.S. Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division, the Asian Pacific American Legal Resource Center, and the Asian American Justice Center. Now, there was so much I got out of this episode I can't wait for you to hear this, but I really want you to listen for when Deepa talks about how value clashes. You know, when we have some differences, don't just necessarily mean that our ecosystem is unhealthy or that there's something structurally or something wrong. But in some cases, it's just a signal for us to do some interior work. And you all know I love a good U-turn, right? Pay attention also to when Deepa talks about the roles of boundaries 
Again, you also know I love a good boundary in hard conversations. So conversations can move to intentional actions. And notice when Deepa talks about how a strong ecosystem can hold different points of view well and produce, I love this term, it can produce generative conflict, quite the opposite of what we see today. All right, y'all, please welcome Deepa Ayer to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Deepa, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I, as I mentioned before we started recording, I've been looking forward to this interview for a long time. So I'm really honored and looking forward to having this conversation because we have a lot to learn from you. Even before we get into the questions, I just want to make a reflection in your book, and I've got it right here, your workbook, (laughs) Social Change Now, A Guide for Reflection and Connection. As I was reviewing this uh, for our conversation again, and I go back to it a lot, I was struck that every time I go into this, I feel expansive, I feel curious, I feel clear, I feel grounded. And I was noticing, especially with so much going on in the world right now, that's not how I feel when there's a need, when there's a divide, when there's polarities, when there's tragedy. I often feel fear. I feel maybe some guilt and shame. I feel obligated. Sometimes I feel pressure to be performative. This, I keep coming back to it. And I just I just wanted to name that before we dig into some things in this book, that it, it has just been a really good grounding anchor when I feel spinning. And I'm reminded, oh, wait, here are my lanes. Here are the places that I can make an impact. Here's what that looks like. And it kind of mutes out a lot of the spinning noise. So I just wanted to start off by saying thank you for this labor of love. It's a real gift and it's so needed right now. Thank you so much, Rebecca. That means a lot to me. I appreciate you. (laughs) I mean it too, um, because I, you know, shame does not create sustained change. Um, Fear does not bring out the best in us. So yeah. Um, you really, and, and I'm a systems thinker. My foundational training is in systems theory. <laughs> and so the ecosystem approach is something that I'm really naturally bent towards. And mm-hmm. you talk a lot about that in your workbook. And I'd love for you to walk me through just the basics of how you define an ecosystem approach to change and how can we figure out our place in an ecosystem? Absolutely. And I just want to reflect back that, um, you know, this framework developed for me during times of overwhelm and confusion Mm. as well. So um, I feel like it helps me still. Uh, I turn to it often um, during those moments, and I'm just glad that it's uh, of use to others too. Um, So the ecosystem framework is really one that moves us from being in silos and in isolation from each other Mm. to connectivity and solidarity with one another. And what it really, um, and you mentioned it, uh, you know, I think when folks look at the visual of the ecosystem framework, they can understand this because it really shows that each of us, whether we're individuals or organizations, have a role to play uh, when we want to advance social change, but that we can only do that when we're actually moving together with others who have the same values or close to the same values, who have the same interest and motivation towards creating change in our society, our neighborhoods, our campuses, our organizations, and um, who really wanna learn from each other. And so this framework has three components to it. It starts with a real focus on values. What are the core values that drive me? What do I mean by words like equality or inclusion? What does that actually mean? And the second question is, what kinds of roles do I want to play? Am I being asked to play? Should I play? in service to those values. And the different roles um, include visionary, builder, disruptor, healer, many others. There are 10 roles that we're invited to think about in this framework, and many of them are very complementary. And then the third part of the framework is that it is an ecosystem in such that when we really focus on our relationships with each other, 
when we're thinking about reciprocity rather than competition, when we're focused on um, understanding how we can move together in a given moment, our ecosystem gets strengthened and we are part of something much bigger than ourselves. And that, I think, limits the confusion and the overwhelm that so many of us are feeling these days. What I like about this approach, too, it's not because so many people that I work with and that I know and a lot of the circles I run in, it's like full body sacrifice. But this is like a both and. Okay, it's, it's, it has to be an internal. Okay, what are my values? What are my gifts and my strengths? How do I work? And how do I connect with others? It's not a my way or, or this is the only way. It really is this interconnection. And here in the States, that's just not um, intuitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> how we work. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned there's weavers, experimenters, frontline responders, visionaries, builders, caregivers, disruptors, healers, storytellers, guides, and weavers. And they're these really cool descriptions. And you really, it, it really stood out to me. Like, I was like, okay, yeah, I, I'm a healer and a weaver. Like, okay. yes. Like, and so then what does that do? And you talk about how how to help even those with those strengths. So how do we even lead others, which is really cool. But just given the the climate that you and that, that we're in right now and the time of recording this conversation, how can healthy ecosystems help build resistance to polarizations and divisions? I think that that's such an important question to be asking right now in this moment where we're seeing Mm -hmm. so much polarization happening, so many ways in which people are not listening to each other or hearing each other or making assumptions and falling into really unsophisticated binaries. And um, the way that if we use an ecosystem model, we can tend to some of that is by one, recognizing that we need to understand where we are aligned when it comes to our values. And that's really Mm. where, as I mentioned earlier, this framework begins. I have seen many organizations in this time do kind of a double take on their values. What do they mean, right, when they're talking about values related to liberation and freedom? Does that only mean for one set of people or one country or one location? How does that actually apply across the board? Um, I've seen organizations think about questions like, is our commitment to justice within the boundaries of only the United States or does it extend? Or um, how are we understanding the histories of occupation and resistance in Palestine, for example? So there are all these conversations that are happening that I think are about values, what we believe in, what's really important to us. So I think that's one way to begin. And even if there is not alignment, which is very much inevitable. We're not always going to be on the same page, even if we have a value of freedom or equality in mind. But it's really the opportunity that an ecosystem can create the container to have some of those uncomfortable conversations and that the ecosystem creates the container where we can all sit with some discomfort and move through that both inside of us, but with each other as well. And recognize and have faith that if we are having those conversations in good faith, that the ecosystem is going to enable us to learn a little bit more about an issue or about each other or where we stand in terms of our values. I think another thing I would quickly say is that when we work as part of ecosystems, we can also really think about doing some work on ourselves, as well as taking the time to learn so that we don't feel as though we have to respond immediately, that we have to say the right thing on social media, that we have to um, know everything about a particular topic, right? An ecosystem approach enables us to learn from others, like the guides who are part of the ecosystem. It enables us to um, take the time that we need to work through um, some of the misunderstandings and the polarizations through the help of weavers and healers. And so relying on others um, to help us understand better what the situation is externally 
and also the skills that we need internally, right, to move through some of this um, can actually come from an ecosystem approach. So we're not feeling like we have to do it all alone or by ourselves. I think it's really powerful because a healthy container, a healthy ecosystem can hold a lot of disagreement, a lot of discomfort, a lot of back and forth without dehumanizing, demoralizing, dismissing, right? That's actually health. <laughs> and as someone who, you know, is in the healing space too, if we have a low capacity for conflict and discomfort, then that is going to be hard to navigate our own internal ecosystem, let alone be in the space with disagreement. And you wrote this in your workbook, and I wanted to, you're alluding to it, but I want us to be a little more explicit with it about how can a clash in values within an ecosystem, whether it's one that we live or work in, be used for positive yeah, I think one of the first things to keep in mind is that those sorts of values clashes don't necessarily mean that our ecosystem is unhealthy or that there's mm -hmm. something structurally and fundamentally wrong with what we've done in the past or any of that, right? I think that it's actually just a signal that we need to do, um, we need to do some interior work to understand what has shifted in our ecosystem. How have external events perhaps put a spotlight on values that we took for granted, but now are exposing some dissonance or confusion or discomfort? And so I think that it's really important that we don't just take for granted that overworking towards a particular goal. So we're always going to be on the same page. Um, that's a very stagnant approach, right, to social change and to ecosystems. So one is just kind of accepting that conflict is inevitable and not being scared of it. Um, mm -hmm. The second is to actually make sure that we are, when we have those values misalignments or values clashes, that we're really leaning on um, the healers and the weavers to come in and help us understand. And I think that's why healers and weavers are so important because they have the ability to look at the big picture. They have the ability to listen. They have the ability to create the container where it's possible to understand where you and I might be coming from and to hear each other's perspectives. They set community agreements. Um, they even sometimes talk about, well, what will happen when we disagree? How will we respond? Right. And so um, it's really important to, to try to include healers and weavers into our ecosystems um, from the get go, but particularly when there is some form of conflict. Um, so values misalignment is actually an opportunity for growth and it's mm. an opportunity for healing and it's an opportunity for progress. I think the one thing I'll just say just to close this out is that I do think that sometimes we can get stuck in a lot of navel gazing when it comes to um, getting everything like right. And I think that's also hmm. this pattern that often happens where we have to have sort of the purest analysis. We have to be perfect before we say or do something. And that can lead to a process where we're kind of looking at our values over and over again, they don't make sense anymore, right? Or we're caught in the cycle. So I think it's also important to set some boundaries in terms of time and questions um, and process so that we're able to move from values to the next step, which is the action. What exactly. is our ecosystem now going to do, right? And even if we're misaligned um, and we're not all perfectly there, what are still some things that we're agreeing to do because the moment requires us to say something or do something? Yeah, perfection and a penchant towards everybody wanting everyone to be comfortable can really derail mm -hmm. needed change and needed action. That's, that's a good word there. I want to keep digging into your workbook, but I want to pause and have you take me back to an experience. You shared this on social media and it really stood out to me. Um, late 
of summer 2023, you traveled back to Louisville, Kentucky, which is the city that your family immigrated to when you were 12. Perfect time to move to a new country, especially, <laughs> right? Exactly. You, you went back there to deliver a workshop. And I just want you to take us back to how you were feeling in that moment as you prepare okay. to talk about things like resistance, solidarity, and belonging back in the place that you went through your teenage years. Yeah. Um, my parents still live in Louisville, Kentucky, so I'm there often. And I have, as you alluded to, a complicated relationship with the city because of many of the experiences that my family and I had when we moved there in the mid-80s. And at that time, you know, in Kentucky, race is really looked at through the binary of black or white. And so it was clear that we weren't white, but it wasn't exactly clear how we um, how we thought of ourselves as Asian Americans or Indian Americans and how that was in relationship to whiteness and also to Black communities and anti-Black racism. So there was a lot there that I don't think I had the words for at all that I can, that I felt and experienced viscerally, but couldn't articulate. And so whenever I go back, it's always a process of renegotiating that for me. And I think this past mm. year, when I returned, um, you know, I had this opportunity to connect with an organization there that is doing some tremendous work around um, unearthing the hidden histories of enslaved Black people in Kentucky. And that led to a podcast um, episode on the podcast that I do called Solidarity Is This, where we were able to really explore what does it mean to unearth these histories in Louisville, Kentucky? What does it mean to unearth them in terms of um, the ways in which these histories have not been shared, taught, et cetera? And um, Hannah Drake and Josh Miller from the Unknown Project have created this um, this real immersive exhibit space on the banks of the Ohio River, where you actually see the names and the footprints mm. of those individuals who were enslaved, but their histories were hidden. And I think for me, just even talking to them and moving through that podcast episode helped me to have a different understanding of how people in Kentucky now are reshaping it and are bringing forward a lot of these experiences and these histories that exist, but that we didn't know about. And it made me feel a lot more connected to a city that I have a complex relationship with. What would you say to 12-year-old Deepa? What would you want to say to her, knowing what you know now? Yeah, I, you know, it's it's interesting because I feel like I am more in touch with her these days because um, as we were prepping for the show, I told you that I had a 13-year-old son. And so as he moves through his adolescence, I see shades of myself and confront myself more. Um, I think that I would tell her that she will find places and people to whom she will belong. Because I think that the lack of belonging was a really tough experience that 12-year-old Deepa and beyond went through, um, especially when you move from the country of your birth and growth and family at that age. It's very different than leaving when you're like one or two years old. Mm -hmm. And so um, the sense of disassociation, um, Mina Alexander, a writer, calls it the shock of arrival. Um, was something that I think had ripple effects in my life for some time to understand and integrate where I belonged and to whom I belonged. And so that's the message I would provide, that that you will find those places and spaces and people to belong to. Where do you find belonging today? Well, you know, I think one of the places that provides me a lot of nourishment when it comes to belonging is indeed social change ecosystems and movement spaces. And for me, that has been primarily in the Asian American and South Asian American community spaces um, where I feel that our shared purpose of um, 
you know, changing systems and policies in this country, um, understanding belonging and inclusion, changing narratives, um, that work really speaks to me. And I find that I have a place there in that ecosystem as a storyteller and a frontline responder and a guide. Um, I also feel spaces of belonging, I think, like many other folks do with family, chosen family and real family, um, friends and community. Uh, so those are the those are the places more so than like a location or like a city uh, place mm-hmm. that I feel that real sense of belonging that like, yeah, this is this is where I need to be right now. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for th- sharing that. It's so hard to have a long game approach when you're an adolescent or even newly launched <laughs> young adult mm-hmm. in a world. And even with my own teenagers right now, and they're starting to look ahead and seeing the world through their eyes um, is hard. But having those certainty anchors of places to find belonging or to know that it will come is so important. And at the beginning of your workbook, you ask a couple of powerful questions that I thought I'd just love to hear you answer. But you ask the reader, and I'd love to hear how you answer these. And the first one is, how can each of us connect with the urgency of this time with effectiveness? sustainability, and connection? Yeah. I mean, I ask those questions in the book because I too am grappling with a lot of that as mm-hmm. well. Um, I think that, you know, when when we're faced with moments of urgency, and I think there's so many that have been presented to us, um, and I think we'll continue to, mm-hmm. um, the way to kind of move through those times is to get really anchored in terms of how can I be of service? Like, what are the skills that I can bring forth that I have learned or that I have experienced to be of service to a particular ecosystem? And then finding an ecosystem that we're connected to. Sometimes people will reach out to me and say, I don't have an ecosystem. Like, I don't really, you know, I'm not connected to X, Y, Z. And I think that, um, it speaks to kind of the isolation that a lot of folks feel, I think, in this day and age. I think it's really important that we connect ourselves or make the ecosystem ourselves. And whether that's, you know, sometimes you can't find it at work and it's something that you find on an online community of activists or in a writing circle I think you have to seek it out. I don't think that we can just do social change as individuals like behind a laptop screen. So the the way that I would answer is to find our ecosystem or make one, right? Create one. And then really understand how in a time of urgency we can be of service. And um, that comes back to, as we talked about, really understanding what our strengths are and what we can bring to the fore. And it could change depending on the moment, too. For example, right. you know, you might be a frontline responder in this moment where you're putting together rallies and protests for Palestinian liberation, and that's where you need to be. But another crisis might come forth in a couple of months, and the role that is needed from your ecosystem might be that of a storyteller to document and share what is happening to communities that are directly affected by that crisis. So I think it's also uh, a nimble approach, a flexible one that enables us to move around, um, both in terms of what's needed of us, but also in terms of our sustainability. Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, and your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Now, leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to 
to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from your past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. So when the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate the inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than you were taught. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. What's coming to mind too, especially as you touch on the loneliness and isolation that many feel um, as they seek out ecosystems, you know, community, stronger connections. What are some of the flags that the ecosystem we're in is one that isn't welcoming diverse thought and difference, but it's kind of that group think and it becomes a little bit of a silo and an echo chamber. What are some of the red flags? Because I think a lot of people have found, especially over the last few years, you know, mm. these, these, what they feel like, oh, I finally come home. But then it's just, there isn't diversity of thought. There isn't challenging. There isn't questioning. It's just a hunkering down um, into these kind of bunkers of being. And so what are some of the red flags that we should look out for in ourselves, but also in the spaces that we're in? Um, that they're not a place of of health, um, but really dangerous. They could, you know, I guess I'm just thinking as we're recording this just days before the January 6th um, anniversary. Uh, and so, yeah, love your thoughts mm-hmm. on that. Yeah, I mean, I think that oftentimes we are part of ecosystems that feel like a pressure cooker and the burners are turned really high up um, because there's an urgency or a crisis or because... Um, we just don't have enough resources and we need to do X, Y, or Z. I think some of the, the flags or questions to be thinking about is, um, is it possible to create space in order to slow mm-hmm. down? Sometimes, you know, when something is really urgent, it's hard to do that. But I think it really behooves us to take a couple of steps to stop and breathe and assess and evaluate before we just move. So that's one question. Can the ecosystem or the container lend itself to be one that allows for that kind of space and reflection process? And that, and that would also be something that's important to you. As you said, it's also about, you know, what is uncomfortable for you. So a lot of people don't, uh, I think, have trouble with that sort of like, let's stop and process. So I think that that is one question that I would often ask in order to feel more comfortable in an ecosystem. Another one is, as you said, where um, there isn't an opportunity to um, to share different points of view, um, to share different strategies or directional points, right? Um, in a strong ecosystem, there is this sense that we can hear multiple points of view and we're not going to kind of crumble when that happens. Yes. So the capacity, again, as we discussed, for conflict management, for generative conflict. Mm. Generative conflict. Yeah, I think that's one of my biggest red flags. If I'm in a space where I feel like it is not my my questioning or disagreeing is not welcome, then I have to interrogate that within myself. Like, okay, what's going on within me and what's going on with this space that I don't feel like it's okay to say, I don't know if I agree with this. I don't know if this is okay. Um, so I think that's huge. And I think it's also important to think about kind of what the bigger picture is, because we can all have different points of view on where something should go or what should happen. But the ecosystem itself is situated in bigger ecosystems, right? It's got a set of goals and it needs to move in a certain direction. So I think that there is the, the it is important to bring our questioning um, and also recognize that the ecosystem may be limited. Like there, there could be the space to talk through things, but 
the decisions that are made might actually be motivated and influenced by factors that we're not aware of. Um, so I think there has to be a little bit of a give and take in terms of the ecosystem being something that will always move in a particular direction. And there isn't just one authority, right? Or one person. I think that's what I like about the ecosystem lens. It's has a lot more of an egalitarian role. Um, there's still probably elements of hierarchy or different levels of role power, um, but it isn't, you know, this so linear top down and, you know, you have to stay safe by, you know, falling in line. Right, and, right. And there's still boundaries, and, yes. and especially though for businesses. And I got, like you said, we still, we, you know, if we need to make money, okay, how are we going to make that money? How are we going to care for those that are helping us make the money? Um, or we want to see change, but how are we going to maintain um, everyone's well-being while we're fighting <laughs> for these um, yeah. what seeming insurmountable changes? So, and on that note, you also ask in these intro questions, and this one really stood out to me, how can we embody grace, joy, and accountability, even when the external forces of division and inequity are relentless? Oftentimes, we are forced into a couple of different types of responses when the forces are relentless, right? We feel as though um, either we're confused and overwhelmed, we don't know what to do, or we take quick actions that are not necessarily aware of or influenced by what's going on around us. Um, or we can get to the point of heartbreak and um, disappointment that it's hard for us to see the possibility. And that's really where that last part is really where I think that question is, uh, that question that you read out loud is about. So um, finding ways to experience joy, even in the midst of tremendous crisis and heartbreak, I think that's a way for us to keep moving forward. Mm -hmm. And it could be something simple, such as I've noticed, for example, you know, something that often gives me joy in the midst of heartbreak is when I hear from young people who are um, becoming really aware to what's going on around them, whether it's, you know, um, whether we're talking about Palestine or whether we're talking about the climate crisis and they, they get engaged, you know, they want to support and that is a way of expanding our ecosystems. And for me, it's it's a small source of joy mm -hmm. um, because it shows that um, the work that we're doing is important and vital and folks are getting energized by it. Um, and, and it's hard to experience that when we're moving through so much disappointment and heartbreak. And then I think around um, grace and accountability that really, I think, is tied to a sense of humility. Mm. And yeah, right. And understanding that, um, and you've said this already, like we can't, like we might not know all the answers and we have to leave some space to say, I made a mistake or I didn't know. And mm -hmm. I think the ecosystem also has to be a container that accepts that um, rather than kind of discard people if they've made a mistake or if they didn't know all of the answers. Yes, that's a word, because I think if there's a fear of being discarded from a place where you find community and connection because you made a mistake or your idea didn't work out or really wasn't something worth moving forward on, like if our worthiness and value are tied to our curiosity and our contribution, that's a huge flag. And I think, too, I, over the holidays, my husband and I were really intentional about joy, like these, you know, the, this uh, approach that I'm training called polyvagal theory talks about finding the glimmers, these little moments where you just kind of feel in your body, whether it's a beautiful sunset or just seeing a kid smile. Um, and I think there's this sense here in with kind of the work ethic in our culture, that if you are resting and recharging and having fun, then you're not invested, you're not mm -hmm. really working hard enough. And I can't call bullshit to that enough. And I'm so done with that, that this is a freaking marathon of so much, whatever we're involved in and taking those moments and those, those glimmers while holding, I mean, right there is grief um, with it all and, and definite uncertainty. 
So I really appreciate this question. I think I'm going to put these up uh, so I can revisit them regularly. And I encourage listeners to do the same. I, I want to shift a little bit, and I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on this. And how do you differentiate social activism and cancel culture? Yeah, speaking of discarding and disposing. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't think that cancel culture is a form of social activism. I think mm -hmm. that it is an approach and a strategy to take down power or what is perceived as power. So I don't really see it being a strategy that we should use um, inside of our ecosystems and movements. I think that it can actually lead to a lot of harm and distrust among folks and among organizations. First and foremost, of course, there are going to be times when we need to hold people accountable or power accountable, right? And that is important. But the cancellation, right, the process of saying, okay, um, you did something wrong, so you are now forever excommunicated from our movement or our um, social change circles, I think it's problematic because it assumes that every single one of us is always going to know what to do. And I can say for myself, I've made so many mistakes over the course of my social change journey that uh, both public and private um, that I've learned from. And I think that when we have this threat of cancellation or this possibility of cancellation, we tend to um, stay closed within. We mm -hmm. don't engage then with the ecosystem. We don't have the uncomfortable conversations. We don't experiment with ideas. We don't explore our curiosity. Um, and so I think that it's a really dangerous way to approach folks within social change movements. It is a little different, though, when we're talking about, you know, people with power and platforms that are making decisions about, like, you know, a policy, right, a government policy that is going to have an impact on a lot of people around mm -hmm. the world. It's not possible often to have an audience with that person. You can't like pick up the phone and have a conversation with your senator, right? To be like a one-on-one -on -one kind of thing. And so sometimes activists do use cancellation um, or calling out to point out some of the ways in which there is hypocrisy. Say an elected official, for example, is not representing the needs of their constituents. Um, so I think we have to sort of think about the way in which we use cancellation or calling out and to whom we're doing it. What I think is problematic is when we're doing it to folks who are part of our own ecosystems. Mm. And so we want, I think it's important to differentiate that, right? And that I see quite a bit inside of social movements and social change spaces where we have this really high standard that we hold, for example, like an executive director too. They're supposed to know everything. They're supposed to always make the right decisions. They're supposed to set the tone and culture for an organization. You know, we've seen examples where that kind of cancellation of like a leader, a social movement leader, um, can be really harmful for the ecosystem as a whole. And in those kinds of cases, when you know someone, when you're familiar with someone, it actually helps to pick up the phone and have a conversation, right? Rather than sort of go online and start blasting them. Um, so I think it's important to really be intentional about who's our target. Um, what are we going to gain from the use of cancellation? Um, what other strategies could we think about first, particularly if we're familiar with this person and know them one-on-one? -on -one? And what is our own role in doing this? Are we trying to embody the role of the disruptor, which is one of the roles on the map, and if so, how is that aligned with, again, the broader purpose, right, and the mm -hmm. values that we're committed to? You know, I, I can't help but be thinking about also at the time of this, our conversation, um, Dr. Gay stepped down as the president of Harvard. And it to me, it was the weaponizing of cancel culture because the intention wasn't accountability. It was really weaponizing and creating, in my understanding, this is me. I feel strongly about it. Happy to have conversations one-on-one, -on -one, not on the DMs, the social media, 
about this, but it was really about creating more distrust, but also um, the second woman to lead Harvard mm-hmm. and the first black woman. So there's so much there and it's just been very heavy on my heart. And that's been the the, the violence, I think, used of of that versus accountability. And I, so the opposite of that, what would you say are the qualities of public accountability when used for good, not doing harm, not weaponizing, not perpetuating uh, power over systems, but mm-hmm. how can public accountability be used for good? And how have you seen it used for good? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you in terms of what has happened to Dr. Gay um, and the weaponization of race and gender at an institution that I think wants to preserve itself right. more so than think about the leadership that it has appointed. In terms of public accountability practices, uh, I've seen this in different ways. I mean, I think that oftentimes it has happened in the form of um, naming, right? Naming and shaming. So for example, um, a lot of corporations that might be uh-huh. behind <laughs> the climate crisis, right? Like naming and shaming those is one way of holding them accountable. Um, another way has been to um, identify the ways in which, and a lot of times I think activists do so much research. It isn't just that they take to you know, Twitter and and say something, right? They've done the research, they've done the reports in terms of understanding where the money flows or where funding comes from or what the connections are in a particular issue and then bringing those to bear. Um, I think accountability also happens when there is the opportunity and prospect of change and redemption and repair. Oh, so like that, if feel, you, that feels mm-hmm. just real, I want to jump in. That feels different than naming and shaming because I'm kind of stuck on that because I don't ever see shame for good. But is it naming and making it really uncomfortable to stay that path, but not dehumanizing in the process? <laughs> it doesn't flow as well. Yeah. But I think if we're ashamed, then we're not going to really change. Like, Could be. I, I think, I mean, I if, think we're it convicted, if we're convicted, if guilt, if I'm like, ooh, I didn't do so, but if I'm doing something, then I'm just doing something for optics or I'm going to turn on myself or turn on others. I don't know. That's just how I understand shame. So um, I get nervous about that. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Um, I think I I probably have a different take on it from the standpoint of campaigns that are really (laughs) focused on bringing about systems change. And so there are times when I think it's a tactic that is helpful, especially if you are identifying publicly. And I think shaming in that context is literally naming, right? Naming an individual or an organization or a Putting light on it. Yeah. Putting light on behaviors. Yes. And that can be vulnerable. Yeah. This is shameful behavior, right? Like this, this is in a way... um, shaming like a community that you're part of, or it is shameful behavior for a corporation that has XYZ values, right? And so I don't necessarily see it um, in that vein. I think that it's just a, it's a tactic that some activists use Mm. in terms of campaigns. Naming and shaming doesn't mean that um, there's no space then for that target to change. I think that the hope is, right, by naming and shaming that there will be some sort of systems change or a policy change or an institutional change. So it creates an opportunity to do that. Um, and the accountability, though, is both ways. The person who's being um, asked to shift has to also feel as though um, they want to do that, that they can do that, that they agree. They have to agree sure. with some of the requests and demands that are being made as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to keep thinking about that because for me, I always have the the, the lens that and, and kind of going with Brené Brown says that shame hurts the person giving it and then also the person receiving it. But I think we're just ta- I think there's a nuance in the words that I think. But to say, wow, this behavior is horrible, and I we want you to change. We just don't want you to crumble. I think that's the thing. I want I see sometimes that the pressure is so much that folks then just make performative changes to get everyone off their back or they hunker down 
and we see this with the Baga crowd, anyone in that, they just, they just hunker down. And the more that people come and try to hold, they love kind of getting everyone enraged. I don't think that the tactic of shaming like a child is the right tactic, right? I, so I just think it's a lot more complex. I don't sure. think that the way that Brene Brown or whoever defines it, that might be in an interpersonal context. And I think that's very different from like a campaign that is trying to to actually say that a government is being shameful. So shaming the people who are associated with that is a tactic that a lot of activists use. And I think that's very different from, I think, what you might be alluding to, which could be like a one-on-one kind of experience that's interpersonal. Yeah, no, it's a good a good rumble to continue with, too. I guess what I'm just thinking of is a lot of leaders, when they get scared, I used to work in D.C., so I've seen a lot of behind the scenes with like senators and the ones that can sit with a lot of public accountability and the ones that are constantly worried, uh, that we're worried about what are they going to think? What if they vote me out? And they kind of are more worried about themselves versus why they're there. <laughs> it's to make a difference. So I, I appreciate you unpacking that a little bit with me. I want to shift a little bit to just about success, especially you know, in light of your work with ecosystems. How has your understanding of success changed since you were younger? And what does success mean to you today? It's not a word that I use a lot. So when you mm. sent me the question, I was also pondering sort of what, what it means to me. Um, I think that, you know, there have been times in, in my life where success has been associated with achievement in different forms. Um, and I have learned over the years and decades that success to me is actually how I would probably define and characterize this contentment. Mm, and I like that. Contentment, I think, looks different to me as I grow older. Um, and, so true. Right. Yeah. And in a lot of times it's um, the space where I feel aligned with myself, where I feel that um, I'm in a sweet spot of, you know, this hour and this day when I'm doing X thing gives me a feeling of deep contentment and alignment. And so that feels like a success. So I think it's different than the way that um, it's usually defined. Totally. And I love, I love this lens on it. I'm going to really be thinking about that. And what would you say are the stakes for all of us right now to engage in social change wherever we lead? You know, I, I just feel that we can no longer deny or dismiss or delegate social change. It's right in front of us, right? And every single one of us actually can take some form of action to make a difference. And it's really important that we don't sort of say, well, someone else is going to take care of it. I think social change right now requires each of us to figure out um, who are who are my people, right, in terms of my ecosystem? Um, what roles do I want to show up as in this moment? And what actions will I be taking in service to the broader goals of the ecosystem? It's not going to be easy. It's not comfortable. It's actually, I think, um, really challenging and um, very as we talked about earlier, oftentimes laden with conflict and discomfort. Yeah. And I think that um, I think that's okay. We just have to accept that. It's not an easy path to be involved in social change. But I think that it's important that we don't dismiss or delegate it to others. Um, so whatever the issue is, right, that really calls to you, I think it's important to um, to lean into it and to not get more and more hunker down into our silos and into these isolated communities that we that we live in and um, really think about where we can dig in and make a difference. I love that. I love that so much. I could keep talking to you for ages. Um, thank you so much for giving us a little bit of uh, a window into your work and your workbook, which I recommend everybody have. 
on their desktop right now. But I want to wrap up with some little lighthearted uh, quick fire questions, uh, which I traditionally do as I end my Unburdened Leader conversations. And I'm curious, Deepa, what are you reading right now? Yeah, I love that question because um, I've been trying to read more. Um, I finished recently a fictional a, a novel called Honor by Thridi Omrigar, um, and Ooh. South Asian American writer that I really re- recommend. And I just started um, the book um, that I'm sure folks are familiar with um, called The Hundred Years War on Palestine by Rashid Khalidi. Um, so that's what I'm moving through right now. What song are you playing on repeat? Right. Uh, <laughs> maybe it's just the, of the um, the new year, uh, but there's a song called This Year um, that I have been listening to quite a bit. So look it up. All right. What is the best TV show or movie that you've seen recently? I have been watching this Danish show called Borgen, which is on Netflix, which is a really interesting series about a woman who becomes the prime minister of Denmark and sort of both her professional as well as her uh, personal life and how that is implicated by taking on this leadership position that she's in. It's really good. Oh, my gosh. What is your favorite 80s piece of pop culture? And if not 80s, whatever um, decade is your jam? I think it's just anything, honestly, 80s music related. Like Hello. MTV, Hello. A total 80s kid. I want my MTV. What have they done? I, I don't just know. Those date. <laughs> I know. It's so sad. I, I, it's so sad. Yeah. And the, and the, uh, the mixtapes. I really miss those. Gosh. I, I know the art of the mixtape, especially waiting... <laughs> for the song to come on the radio yes. so you can hit record yes. at just the right time. Yes. Yes. If you are a Gen Xer, you are understanding, <laughs> maybe a little millennial too. Okay. What is your mantra right now? Yeah, that's very, um, it's like you picked all these questions that I have been thinking about. So it's great. Uh, <laughs> it's actually um, Stay Gold, which I recently wrote an essay Ooh. at the beginning of the year on uh, Substack about this. But um, it's a, it's a phrase that comes from this book called The Outsiders by Essie Hinton that was a real favorite of mine. And then my kid read it this year. So we got to read no it. Way. And there's a poem in there called Nothing Gold Can Stay by Robert Frost. And one of the characters in the book um, says, stay gold. And it's just a way to recognize kind of like what you talked about earlier, where those small moments of joy, even if they're ephemeral and they're temporary, can be the moments that stay gold and stay permanent inside of us. Yeah. And are sustaining too. I'm so curious to hear what you're going to say to this. What is an unpopular opinion that you hold, Deepa? I don't know. At this point, maybe it's the uh, the shaming <laughs> of our conversation, <laughs> um, the public shaming. I don't, I'm not sure. That was a tough, that's a tough one for me. Um, I'm going to have to get back to you on that one. No problem. <laughs> Who or what inspires you to be a better leader and human? You know, I think that um, the person, the person that both challenges and inspires me would be my son, my teenage son. Um, and I think as any parent, your parent, uh, it's it's like the hardest thing that I've ever done in my life, and where I feel like I'm constantly like confronting the limits of what I'm capable of. Um, but, you know, just kind of watching him grow into himself and recognizing that my role there is to be a guide um, in that process is one that really inspires me to to do better. And then also uh, to make sure that I'm exposing him to a lot of the injustices and the inequities and the possibilities in this world. Um, so that really, I think, is what challenges and inspires me. With you on that 100%. Deepa, this was really an honor. Um, thank you for your time. For folks listening, where can they find you and connect with your work? Yeah, so um, I would say that on the ecosystem framework, the place to go is www.socialchangemap.com. 
and on work related to solidarity practice that I do at the Building Movement Project. The website is www.solidarityis.org. And then I'm also on Instagram at Deepa V. Iyer. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. It, again, it has been an honor and I really appreciate you and all that you put out into the world. Thanks so much for having me, Rebecca. Before you go, I want to ensure you take away some important wisdom Deepa shared with us in this Unburdened Leader conversation. Deepa walked us through on how her workbook and methodology, Ecosystems for Change, and Run Don't Walk to order this workbook, please, can help us align on most of our values, though not every single one, to move us forward together. She also talks about how we can help create space for all the different roles she details in her ecosystem. And this normalizes conflict and decreases overwhelm when we don't know how to help and make a difference in our world that is so on fire right now. Lastly, Deepa talks about the power, <laughs> I just really love this term, the power of generative conflict that moves us collectively forward with meaningful action when we really listen and honor all the differences in our ecosystems. And this takes work and this takes time. And and this approach, it challenges the uh, approach of what we think efficiency is. And we have a whole lot of unlearning about what it means to be productive. And I really appreciate how this model can do that. So I'm curious, what piques your interest about the ecosystem for change approach? And how does your relationship with conflict help or hurt how you lead yourself and others. As we wrap up this episode, it's so important to reflect on how we do conflict. How you approach your feelings of overwhelm by all the needs in the world can lead you to feel frozen or it can take you on a deeper discovery of yourself so you can have a greater impact on all those around you and the world. And this is the ongoing work of an unburdened leader. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources, along with ways to work with me and sign up for my weekly Unburdened Leader email at www.rebeccaching.com. And again, if this episode impacted you positively, I'd be honored if you left a rating, a review, and shared it with some folks who you think may benefit from it. And this episode was produced by the incredible team at Yellow House Media.